Jeremiah chapter 8, and we're going to jump all over tonight. As I'm doing something unusual, I'm doing a topical, a topical message. Jeremiah chapter 8. Isaiah, Jeremiah chapter 8. Name my kids, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Daniel. And I lamented during the nights when they would, you know, Lamentations is written by Jeremiah. It's, it's, it, we call him the weeping prophet. And I lamented when they were between zero and two, waking up at night. And I'm glad I didn't have to breastfeed them, you know. <laughs> I could just sleep. And my wife had to get up every couple hours to feed those guys. And uh, I said, I, I think that's a great thing. I didn't want to go to bottles, and I may have to get up and help out. You know how that goes. Uh, we're kind of spoiled guys when it comes to having kids, aren't we? Our wives do so much more than we. And uh, thank God for them. And, but uh, they, I'm blessed to have these guys. Jeremiah is, is my oldest. And we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 19 and following. Stand. He says, Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because, them, because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. That does not mean a spiritual salvation. It means deliverance from oppression, because Israel was under oppression. It says, For the hurt of the daughter of thy people am I hurt. I am black, astonished, that taken hold on me, hath taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no fish, physician there? Why is then not the health of thy daughter, my people, recovered? And let's pray, and then I'll explain a little more about this. Lord, we ask you to bless tonight as we take a look in your book for a walk in the world. As we look tonight at people who have cried and why they have cried, and we thank God that one day there'll be no more tears, of, tears of sorrow. I thank God for tears of joy in those times we've cried because we're so full of joy. But, Lord, there are many times we cry because we have difficult times in this life. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, Jeremiah's sorrow is, is because, you know, they weren't delivered. I mean, they were under Babylonian, you know, control for years and years. And then Cyrus comes in and takes over. Psalm 126, 5 and 6 is a well-known passage that I've often heard preached uh, at times, missions, conferences, and things. It says, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. But that's not about winning souls, although that we apply that sometimes. It's really about the children of Israel coming back from Babylonian captivity, planting seeds and weeping tears of joy because finally they're back in their land, planting crops and reaping a harvest. You know, we understand how we love our country. But I don't believe we love it on the same level that Jews love their country because that's the promised land. And, and they've been there for thousands and thousands of years. America's only 200 and some years old. So we don't have quite the connection they do to their land. In fact, they were never allowed to sell land. We think of people in, in passages in the Bible where a, a Jew was asked to give up or sell his land and they just wouldn't sell out. We think of uh, Ahab wanting a, a vineyard from Naboth and Naboth wouldn't let him have the vineyard. And so they had a great love, and they wept a lot over their land. In fact, four chapters, Lamentations, is all about weeping because Jerusalem had fallen and the land was taken over. So we, we understand the concept of weeping. 
Uh, there's many in Scripture who have wept. We're going to look at a few of those. But tears have been described as the liquid of the soul. Um, the souls in hell will weep, obviously, for eternity because they want to be delivered and they never will. And we weep temporarily in this life. We won't, we won't weep in the afterlife. In fact, the Bible said there'll be no more weeping. But crying's an interesting thing. Uh, we, we, our kids are born, they're born into this world and right away they're crying. And my dad used to say for crying out loud and we never understood what that, that meant when he'd say that, but we understand what crying means. My mother cried almost every time she went to church. She'd sit there with a hanky and we could see tears. Her nose would be bright red because she loved the word. She cried tears of joy that she could be in church and that her kids were with her and, and all that. And, and when I preached, I mean, I looked out and I thought, Mom's crying. And I know it was special for her when I preached. But tears are oftentimes uh, a very bad thing, a very sad thing. Tears are good. It's good to release tears. Never be ashamed to cry. I only saw my dad cry once in his life, but uh, sometimes men don't want to cry, but tears are good. And in Scripture, we find so many different people crying. You probably didn't know that, but we'll look at Genesis chapter 29, and we find Jacob. He weeps because of anticipation. He's expecting to meet a wife, and he meets his cousin who he's never seen, and God had instructed, obviously, for him to marry her. And he sees Rachel and he begins to weep. I shouldn't say God instructed him to marry her. His dad had instructed him and all that. And you know the story because really Leah was the real virtuous woman in that story, not Rachel. And because Leah was the line of the Lord Jesus Christ, the tribe of Judah, he wanted Rachel. But obviously God worked it out where he got Leah. And Rachel was the second wife, and that didn't please the Lord. Even though Rachel we think of as a good woman, we know that when he saw her, he wept because of anticipation. Ended up being deceived, marrying Leah, and you know the rest of that story. We have Judah in Jesus Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then in Genesis chapter 43, Joseph weeps because of loneliness. Chapter 43 in verse 30, um, he, he, his brothers bowed to him. And oh, what a story that is. It's my favorite Bible story. You know, his brothers who had, uh, some wanted to kill him. They said, no, others said and spoke up and said, let's just throw him in a pit and sell him as a slave. And that's what they did. As the youngest of, of 12, you know, he was spoiled by his dad and his dad shouldn't have showed favoritism. That's always wrong when you love one of your, show favoritism to one of your kids. Even you say, well, I love them all the same, but you can't favor one over the others. They pick up on that and they see that. <clears throat> His daddy did that, bought him that coat of many colors. So there was envy, jealousy. I guess envy more. And so he's thrown into this pit, and you know that, that story. And how he's pulled out of the pit, ends up in Egypt as a servant, and he goes from Potiphar's house, you know, the palace, and then he goes, you know, from the pit to Potiphar's house. Then he ends up in prison, and then he's in the palace, and he's a high ranking person. Awesome, awesome story. But when his brothers come, he sees them and he recognizes them, recognizes them. And he wants so bad to say, guys, it's me. But he remembered the hurt. He remembered how sad he was. You can imagine when 11 brothers just get rid of you, how that must have felt. I'll guarantee he wept and wept and wept in that pit. And he wept in prison. So many times he wept. He felt lonely. And here they are now. They're standing before him. Oh, what a story that is. And he wept. Later, he weeps when he forgives them. 
In fact, one time he wept so, so loud people could hear him through the walls of the palace. He's just sobbing. He had to leave his brothers to weep when he was deceiving his brothers to try to get them to be uh, open and transparent. And finally, they do come clean. But what a story. And then Pharaoh's daughter one day is out strolling along the banks of the Nile and she hears a little baby, little baby Moses weeping. And thank God for that little tear in the little eye of that little baby who felt abandoned as his mother had to just sort of let go of him because if she were caught, he'd be put to death. And so she just hoped and trusted. And no doubt God put that idea into her head. All good things come from the Father of lights, the Bible says. So she has an idea and she builds a basket. It's the same Hebrew word as ark and a, a coffin. She puts that baby in the basket and that baby's floating down the river and just so happens in God's sovereignty that Pharaoh's daughter walks out there and here's this beautiful baby crying and she just fell in love with him. But those are tears that are very important in Scripture. And David wept, obviously, when he knew he was going to be uh, losing his baby. He wept and he wept and he wept. And, and finally, when the baby died, he said, I'm not going to weep anymore. The baby's gone. And he went to comfort Bathsheba. And that, of course, those were tears of sorrow and sad because he created that situation to have to lose that child. John, in Revelation chapter 4, when he was told no one is worthy to open the book. He was given material from God, but no one was worthy to open that scroll and read it. So John wept. And it's sad to think that even now we don't have anyone worthy. You know, we have, I thank God for the prophecy we do have. But folks, we only see through a glass darkly right now. We don't realize what's to come. We could never describe end time events with our English language. We wouldn't have words great enough to describe how awesome it's going to be when Jesus steps out and calls us home. Amen. We'll never understand the greatness of that. When we're up in heaven and we see the, the tribulation unfolding and the suffering of people and see how God brings the Jews to their knees and the great revival, we can never really describe it as great as it's going to be. And then when we come back with him, to set up this kingdom, we come back with the Lord to the earth. Can you imagine that? How could you ever describe that? I could say awesome, magnificent, but it will never describe what it's going to be like until we're there and we feel it and we see it. And we aren't going to get tired. You know, I mean, there's been so many great times in my life. I remember my boys playing sports and they were all athletes and I'd go to their ball games and my one son played football and uh, they won the region and sub-state. And I remember being up there hollering, ah, losing my voice <clears throat> and uh, loving all that. But then guess what? On the way home, I was in the car and by one mile after another, I got more and more tired. Totally exhausted. Got home so tired, I couldn't enjoy it anymore. I went to bed. Let me tell you something. When Jesus comes, we're not going to get tired. <laughs> we're just going to keep celebrating. Can you imagine all the celebration? And excitement, I have a partially torn rotator, so I held that arm up and it hurt. But all the excitement as we, as we come back with him and set up a perfect kingdom for a thousand years. I mean, that's awesome. Well, John cried because no one could open the scroll and read the rest of the material. But we're going to look at just a few more who wept. We're going to look at passages. 2 Samuel chapter 18. 
And this, this really makes me cry. I actually cried studying this passage one time. I've never preached this to you. One day I will, hopefully, Lord willing. I have all these things I'm going to preach, but, you know, you only speak three times a week. But this is, a, that's a lot, but I'm just saying I, I may not catch up and, and share all these things. But here in, in 2 Samuel 18, 32, and this is just heart-wrenching um, because you love your own kids, and Absalom was a child of David. But Absalom was messed up spiritually. We know that. He had gone astray. He wanted to take over his dad's kingdom. I mean, he had these big, this big ambition to be the king of Israel. And he, he, he obviously, you know, uh, would never become the king. And a lot of times, people would kill all their cousins and everyone, their half-brothers and step-brothers and everything to try and get the throne. And Absalom conspired against his own dad. He got runners. These are people who would ride through the city with big banners pulled behind horses to say, Absalom will be our savior. And not in the same context as Jesus, but Absalom will be our hero. He can lead us to victory. He'll straighten out this problem, that problem. And he would send these horses through the city and all through the land with these big banners, getting people to rally to vote for him. It was like a big political campaign. David actually had to hide from him. I mean, think of that. You know, God weeps for people when they go astray, and David's a lot like God at this time in his life. David caused this, but we know that he's going to mourn for Absalom. Remember the story when Absalom gets caught in a tree, his long hair gets caught, and he gets killed. So just after this, Cushai came in verse 31, and he had tidings, meaning he had news. He said, news, my lord, the king, my master, the king. For the Lord, that means Yahweh, hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. And the king said unto Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, The enemies of my lord, the king, in all that rise against thee, do hurt thee, be as that young man. So now David's relieved of the fear he had in having to hide from his own son. But it's still his son. Look at verse 32. And the king was much moved and went into the chamber over the gate and wept as he went. And he said, oh, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. He'd rather died than his own son die. No one likes to bury a child. David, no doubt, hated the fact that Absalom was not right with God. A lot of it was David's fault. But still, when your son dies... The pain and the hurt is intense. And so we have David here weeping. Look at Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah chapter 38. Verses 1 through 5. Here we have a passage in Isaiah 38, 1 through 5 about Hezekiah. And Hezekiah wept because he was sorrowful for his, for his sin. His house was not in order. You know, it's sad. I don't know how many people I meet that reared children. Some of them even say to me, I regret, I regret even having children. That's a sad thing to hear. But we, we realize rearing children is so much work. I mean, I, the hardest thing I've done is being a dad. I mean, I never thought of abandoning my kids. I thought of killing them a time or two, but never abandonment. I loved them, but man, there were times I was like, you've got to be kidding me. 
And they did things at times that embarrassed me. I didn't want to admit I was their daddy, you know? And when they were little, you know, they're easier actually when they're little because you can spank them and you can get them dressed and you can bathe them and put them in bed. But as they get older and they get more independent, they hit the puberty years, middle school. I think for a boy, the hardest time in a boy's life is when he's in middle school. He now has the body of a man and the emotions of like a three-year-old. And it's like, how do we deal with a boy in middle school? And it was very challenging. And I know I wept. <laughs> because of things my kids did that really I get so upset and, and it would just crush me and, and I, I shed tears over my boys. Here's Hezekiah. He's sick, it says in verse 1. Sick unto death. And he, thus saith the Lord, set thine house in order for thou shalt die and not live. Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, remember now, O Lord, I beseech ye. Now I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. He was told to get his house in order, but God ended up adding years to his life. And, 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 and he wept, he wept. These are good tears, he wept. Uh, and, and, and sometimes tears are good in that when we're crying, God sees our sincerity. And I know that the unjust judge, when the Bible says that this lady kept going to him and kept going to him, the persistence there caused God to answer her prayer. And I think when we shed tears because things are wrong in our life, whether we don't have time to study all of Hezekiah's life, but when things are, are not lined up the way they should be and, and we're crying about it, you know. And I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have to ask how many of you have shed tears because every hand would go up. And, and sometimes men don't like to admit it, but, but we've had to cry so many times in our life. And so many times God saw those tears and saw a brokenness. And let me just say to you, all people need to be broken at some point in time in their life. You know, God's broken me a few times in my life, and he probably needs to break me again. There was a time when I it was kind of like in demand as a preacher. I'd get calls to preach at places, and I was always really thrilled and thought, I'm getting asked to preach in this place, you know? And I'd go and think, man, I must really be important or something. And I got to a place in my life, it's been a, quite a few years ago, and, and God just did something in my life that just brought me to my knees and made me realize I am nothing, nothing but by God's grace, you know? And I just had to say, thank you, Lord. And I went back to the mission field after this particular furlough and had all these lists and contacts and all these things. I thought, when I come home next furlough, I'll call all these people and go to all these churches. And I had, you know, names and so forth and it never worked out. And I got home, this guy had left. This pastor wasn't pastoring anymore. And uh, of course it was later that I was broken before that, but this was just sort of how it all ended up unfolding, ended up being gone so long overseas that I lost all these contacts. And I was telling a fellow, a friend of mine, you know, I used to have a big church, and this is years ago, and I said to him, now I'm a, a nothing. And I remember my pastor said something to me one time that came back at this time. Years ago, I went to the mission field and started my, the first church I started. And, 
We had 20 people. Uh, we, we, had, we wanted to have 20 people in church, just starting a church. And only 12 showed up and had a guest speaker. I was so embarrassed. I said to the guy, I was hoping we'd have 20. I'm sorry, we just have a dozen. Called my pastor. I was discouraged. I mean, I'm from a mega church. He's not going to be impressed with 12. And I said, Pastor, I'm just so discouraged because I have such a small work. And he said, Dan, there's no small work with God. There's no small work with God. That's all he said. That was the end of the conversation. We talked a little more, but that was it. There's no small work. And so when I was telling my friend a few years later how I feel like a nobody, he said something that made me remember what my pastor had said. Dan, it's really not like that. If God gives you one person to minister to, you can pour a whole lot into one person. If you have 100 people, you can't pour quite as much into each of the 100 that you can pour into the one. If you have 1,000 people, you blow into the church, you can't hardly even greet anybody or spend any time because you've got all these people. So, you know, it doesn't matter about numbers and size to God. He wants us just to be real and to affect the people in our lives we come in contact with. Your ministry may be a ministry of five people. It may just be your kids right now. It may be one neighbor you're reaching out to. Do it well, because you have more opportunity with one than you have with 10. And you have more opportunity with 10 than you do 100. But we, we understand the concept. God has us right where he wants us. Did you know that? You are where you are by God's grace. And so we, we think of all the different ones in Scripture who wept. We think also of Luke chapter 22. And this is another point of brokenness. I just, I just could just imagine um, Luke twenty two sixty two, And I think of Simon Peter, and I'm giving you all these stories and I'm not able to pack it all up with Scripture, so just trust me. But Simon Peter, can you imagine how he felt when the cock crowed, when the rooster crowed. Well, in 2262, it says here, verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. It hadn't hit Peter. Even though he heard the cock crow, he had to think about this. But now he's standing in front of Jesus. And Jesus reminded him his words. He said, before the cock crow, you're what happened? And Peter went out and wept bitterly. I mean, Peter was so broken. It all finally came to roost. It all finally came to home. It all, the expression came to roost, but it's all here on his heart now. Finally, he said, you know what? I was one of his loyal followers. He's being crucified, and I'm denying I even know the man. And it finally hit him, what a louse he was. He's finally broken. We all need to be broken. Sometimes we don't see it. Our arrogance, our sin, we realize all of a sudden, at some point in time, how wretched we are, how lousy we've been. In my own life, there's been times like that. And the only thing I could do is weep. Oh, God, I'm such a jerk. That's been my word for myself. I'm such a jerk. Why didn't I wake up and see this? Then in John chapter 20, 
And I, I love this. I love this. I, I just would like to have been there. I mean, just, just imagine this scenario. Here's Mary, and you know the story, verse 11, but Mary stood out without or outside the sepulcher weeping. I mean, she's just weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. She sees two angels. But She's broken because she loved Jesus so much. Remember, she's the first one to the tomb. I mean, I have a lot of respect for the women of the New Testament. We talk a lot about the men, but think of the women. Think of Mary. And she's broken. But I like this story because she's broken because Jesus has died and he's gone. But just a few moments later, she starts to realize the impact of all this. He's alive. He's alive. I mean, even old John was running when he found out about the resurrection. He's an old man, and he's running. He's the elder, and he's running. The excitement of Jesus coming back to life. We don't have all that in Scripture. We have what God intended us to have, but I'd sure like to have just been in that room for 30 seconds when Jesus walked through the wall and held his scarred hands out. Could you imagine what it was like? Uh, I, I don't think they were just, oh, hey, how you been? Uh-uh. There was jubilation, astonishment, shock, excitement, like we've never seen at a Super Bowl game, I can tell you that. He's alive. The one they thought was dead is alive. So Mary weeps because the body's gone. And then Jesus appears to her in verse 14, and he says to her in verse 15, why are you weeping? She thinks he's the gardener. <laughs> and then he says, it's me. And Mary bolted to tell the disciples, and I don't know what it would have looked like with all the stuff they wear for Mary to go excitedly to tell the disciples that she's seen him. That must have been quite a trip, the excitement. She couldn't wait to share. And then in John 11... A few chapters before, we know Jesus wept. Second shortest Greek verse in the Bible. <coughs> Two words, Jesus wept. The shortest Greek verse is Thessalonians, pray without ceasing is only one word. Here's the shortest in the English, Jesus wept. Two words. Second shortest in Greek. And we know he wept for Lazarus. And that's, that's puzzled me. I mentioned this a few, few services ago. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus. Why does he weep? He weeps because he feels the pain of the ladies. And he says weep with those that weep. He tells us that in the Beatitudes. Do you know what we're supposed to do? When we have a friend that's broken, we're supposed to weep with them. Boy, wouldn't that be encouraging? If you were broken and you were crying and someone came up that loved you and just wrapped their arms around you and wept with you, that, that is so powerful. If we did stuff like that, the Beatitudes, if you be this, you have the right attitude, Beatitudes. Jesus did that. He didn't just preach things, he lived it. Years ago, I had a friend, he doesn't know this, but he uh, lost his grandson. And I just started thinking about how I would act if I lost my grandkids. I've got one on the way and eight others already existing. If one of those kids died, let me tell you something. You'd see a side of me that 
would make you think different about me because I would have a hard time saying one word if my grandkids died. And so, brother, Steve lost a grandchild and I, somebody called me and I hung up the phone. I was in my office and I just started to cry. I thought what it would be like if it happened to me. And I wrote him a note and how, you know, I'm so sorry for you. And the note came back. He never got it. I've always wanted to go tell him, but I don't need his pat on the back. But that one time I could actually feel his pain. And that's what we need to do. Have more time in prayer for people to feel their pain, to hurt with them and to weep with them. And those kinds of people in your life are difference makers. But Jesus wept three times. Three times. He wept as an intercessor in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. He wept here, we've already read. And he wept in Luke 19. He looked over a city and he saw the city and he knew they were without hope. And he cried for lost sinners. And that's where we get the idea that we should weep for lost souls. It's the only time in Scripture we're told Jesus wept for lost people. I don't have that kind of compassion. I pray for God to allow sinners to come here. And I want to reach those sinners with the gospel. And I pray for that. But I don't have the compassion Jesus does. And neither do you. But we need to learn to understand the importance of weeping for one another. And weeping for the lost. And it's okay for men to cry. You know. Didn't think it was. My dad didn't think it was okay. He didn't think it was okay. And the one time I saw my dad cry. I was just so broken by the fact that he cried. It was so good for me. Listen, tears are a wonderful thing. They're wonderful in Jesus. And then sadly, I hate to end on a sad note, but look at Revelation chapter 21. What a time. And Revelation 21.4. I love this. I shouldn't say a sad note, but in chapter 20, the last five or six verses, we have the great white throne judgment. I understand there's no chapter divisions. So we have just witnessed the judgment of wicked dead people from all ages. And I don't know how this is going to happen because there's no time with God, but how long are we going to sit there and watch everybody being judged? And I don't know how it's going to work, and I can't explain it because we just trust God it's going to happen. But he, he raises all the dead wicked people from the sea, from the earth. The dust and the ashes will all come back, and they'll all stand before him. And he will judge them and he'll cast them into the eternal lake of fire. And as we read on, remember there's no chapter divisions. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And he goes on to say in verse 4, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. What's John talking about? He's talking about the witnesses of the great white throne and we are there. We're there. Now why is God going to have to wipe tears from my eyes at the great white throne judgment? I'll tell you why. I'll probably see a neighbor there that I never witnessed to. I'll probably see someone I worked with never gave the plan of salvation. Maybe a family member, maybe a relative, and to see them judged and cast, the only thing that would stop us from crying would be the Lord himself. We're not going to be able to stop crying. It's going to be like a mother that loses her child and she weeps and she weeps for days and days and months and people say, will she ever stop crying? Eventually she will. But if we don't have God wipe the tears away, we won't be able to stop because we'll realize the reality of hell and eternal punishment, and we'll realize it's over for them. Now, thank God he's going to wipe those tears, and I'm sure he's going to wipe that memory out of our mind. But that day is coming.
when we're going to witness the judgment of all the sinners of all time. And we're going to see people we know cast in the eternal lake of fire. With that, let's be about God's business witnessing. Amen. There's somebody in your life you can share the gospel with. Pray for opportunity. Don't just go out of here and just make a beeline and just start, you know, saying to someone you need to be saved and, and going about it in the flesh. Pray, God, listen, God, I want a witness. And I, I want this one person to be saved. And God, I pray for you to open a door and that the Holy Spirit will prepare the heart. Do you know no one can get saved unless God prepares that heart? But let's think about the fires of the great white throne judgment and realize we have a job to do. God bless us. Thank you for your word. Be with us now as we go our separate ways and God, we'll just sing one hymn and maybe someone wants to come and pray for a lost loved one and maybe shed some tears. God, we thank you for tears, even though at times they represent hardship. Help us, Lord, to shed tears now weeping for those that need us rather than have to weep later when we see them stand before God. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.